Hello, everybody. I'm Sean Collins. On today's program, we're talking to nurses about nursing. You don't talk about the experience of zipping a body bag closed in nursing school. Nurses are the face of healthcare. More than any other healthcare professional, nurses are there interacting with patients in every stage of illness. Their interaction with patients, whether positive or negative, is likely to color the patient's view of their care. It certainly will have an impact on their sense of well-being. The way they educate patients will influence how well patients adopt sometimes very complex lifestyle changes that are at the heart of living with so many chronic health conditions. Nurses are the linchpin, and they're our focus today on the Hear Me Now podcast that comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. A crisis in nursing is a crisis in all of healthcare. Maybe I have that backwards. Maybe the crisis is in healthcare generally, and we notice it first at the bedside where nurses and patients interact. Before the pandemic, one measure put the burnout rate among physicians and nurses at 50%. In the past two years, according to Morning Consult, a survey research company, one out of every five nurses have quit. And healthcare facilities are facing financial ruin as a result. Something has to change. We'll talk about nursing today, about retention and satisfaction, about innovation and what the future holds. I'm pleased to welcome three nurse leaders from around the country for that conversation. All three are RNs and all three have earned Doctor of Nursing Practice degrees. We've invited them here to talk with one another about their profession and what they see on the horizon. Dr. Claire Zangerly is Chief Nurse Executive at Allegheny Health Network in Pittsburgh. Dr. David Marshall is a Senior Vice President and Chief Nursing Executive at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. And Dr. Syl Trepanier is Senior Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer for Providence, based in Renton, Washington. Dr. Zangerly and Marshall, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Sean. Nice to be here. Syl, welcome back. Thank you, Sean. Why don't you start us off? Good morning, David. Good morning, Claire. You know, I don't know about you, but my sense is uh, you spend you spend a lot of time asking people as you're walking about, you know, the halls of your organization, asking them how they're doing, how their leaders are doing. And I wonder, when was the last time someone asked you that question? So I'm going to start us off there. So David, Claire, how are you doing? That's nice of you to ask, because you're right. People don't always ask how how we're doing because it's really up to us to take care of everybody. Um, how am I doing? Um, you know, I was really hopeful at the, um, around first part of November that, that, you know, we would all have a break and be able to breathe a little bit. But I can tell you that, <clears throat> that it's, it's been very stressful since, you know, the new variant has come along and 
on top of that, you know, our employees are getting sick. You know, I, it's, it's sort of like when your parents get sick and you're a kid and, and you don't know what to do. And I, I feel that way. I feel that way with my staff and my, my nurse leaders, my direct care staff. They are feeling the brunt of it. And they've been taking care of other people for so long. I worry about them being taken care of. I, I feel like we've been going through so much. And now it just, it, it gets worse. It, it's gotten worse and worse. Now we're starting to turn the corner, which is great. But um, I, I do feel like, how am I doing? Um, I'm probably at the same level as my team is just tired, just tired, need a break. I put in for PTO the last two weeks of December, didn't have one day that I wasn't working. But it's for the team, you know, you just do that. I think Claire is right that we, we spend a lot of time as chief nurses uh, going around and checking on other people. Um, Phil, you mentioned it, how we, when we're making rounds, we're interacting with other team members. We're always concerned about how they're doing. And it, um, I, I, just reflecting on the last uh, 48 hours, I've been asked several times how I'm doing. And I, I kind of wondered, is it because I don't look good? And uh, I, I don't think that's the case. But I took the weekend off. I, I, um, had been working for about um, 14 days straight without uh, not coming into the office. And um, I decided that things were at a stable level on Friday, so I'm not gonna work this past weekend. And it, it was a good weekend. I got to focus on being outside. It was very pretty in Los Angeles over the weekend. And um, unfortunately it started raining yesterday and rained for like 24 hours, my first experience of a, a rain event like that in Los Angeles, but I'm, I'm doing well. I feel good. I think um, our staff are in a good place. Uh, my my leadership team is in a good place, and um, I'm looking forward to getting past this surge and uh, working on our strategic objectives for the next few years. Thanks for asking. How about you, Sil? You know, this morning I'm I'm actually doing really well. I took a week off last week, and uh, you know, Clara, it was really resonated with me when you talked about taking some you know time off in in December and then not being able to mm -hmm. take any time off. Um, I was anticipating uh, initially, uh, like you, having, uh, you know, perhaps somewhat normal holidays or close to normal normal holidays, and it certainly was not the case. I ended up uh, working uh, way more, in fact, way more than the prior year during the holidays, which was very interesting. But last week, I, I checked out. I completely checked out. Uh, you know, like you uh, have a great team and engaged a team in, you know, taking it for what it is and I'm supporting them from, from afar, but I, I, needed, I needed that time uh, for myself. Uh, so it was actually a really good, uh, it was a good week. It was good to be able to, uh, to replenish, replenish my soul. And because um, you're right, it's... Uh, it's getting old already, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really hard. I really love what you said, Claire, earlier when you said, uh, it's like when your parents are sick and you're a child. Uh, that really resonated with me. I, I kind of have to let that one sit for, you know, a little bit and, and think this through. And I, I imagine that many of our leaders feel that way too when they're looking at the enormous amount of people that are off sick right now. Right. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that's pretty significant in the workforce right now. 
it certainly is for us. Um, and um, it's not for lack of people being vaccinated. And I guess that's the frustrating part because this time last year, we were doing mass vaccination events and the amount of hope and enthusiasm was just incredibly infectious. And to be where we are a year later and those people who were getting vaccinated and giving vaccinations are getting sick, it's a little frustrating. And I don't, and, and you know, we talk a lot about resilience, but this is beyond resilience. This is, you know, let's figure this out and move forward. Or it's, it's also questioning just things in general. Is this going to be our new normal? Are we going to continue to have these different variants come along? Is this, is this ever going to abate? And um, trying to be, it's tough to be positive and be the cheerleader about it. Like, yes, it'll get better because I've been wrong a couple of times. It's going to get better. And then we had a surge. Then it got better. Then it, it slammed again. But, you know, the, I think what I, what I learned those two weeks that I didn't get to take off, I learned that even if I can't take it off, I still have to get up every morning. I have to get on my Peloton do what I plan to do before I get to work, because if not, then I, I'm not taking care of myself. And knock on wood, I have not had COVID. I've not been sick with any kind of upper respiratory infection, nothing, knock on wood, for the last, since this whole thing started. And you know what? That has been a blessing because I've been able to be available to my teens. But it's because I have to think about taking care of myself, and maybe it's not getting to take off um two weeks over the holidays maybe it is getting up every morning and taking care of myself because that fills my bucket before i get to work and i encourage other people to do that too the birth making me feel guilty i did take the two weeks uh, off around the holidays I, I played santa at cedar sinai on the 22nd then i uh, took off for two weeks came back after the new year and re refreshed it was wonderful i think claire's right about this this variant, you know, I used to live on the Gulf Coast and had experienced several hurricanes in my career and used to say something like, uh, you see one hurricane, you see one hurricane, because mm -hmm. they each have nuances and differences is impacts. And it's been the same with this variant. Our workforce has really been impacted more with illness this time than they were in the past. So I think it's created a different kind of fear for them and a thought that it's, it's going to happen to me. I just better get prepared for it. I've certainly thought that um, I've escaped it up until now, but it looks like it's more and more likely that I'm probably going to get it at some point, despite being vaccinated and boosted and, and doing the right things for my health and um, taking vitamin D and yep. all those things that they say are preventative. If not, if, it's when, and be ready for it. Yeah, it's been very different for us to be able to maintain our commitment to care for the community in the Los Angeles area uh, with so many staff out um, with the illness. It's been a challenge. Can I ask about the level of staffing at your organizations at the moment? How are you staffing nurses at the bedside? In Los Angeles, we um, have mandated ratios for um, our uh, staff. So we maintain those ratios, not to be out of compliance with the state requirements. We've got about 250 travel nurses in the organization uh, right now at our main medical center. Um, in Beverly Hills, um, we have provided enhanced uh, premiums for nurses to pick up additional shifts. Sort of scares me, but it's been something that they seem to have uh, like to have the ability to do. 
Um, I'm afraid that that's putting more work on them um, than they should take, but um, it's something they asked for and, and we needed their help. So we're getting a lot of extra shifts um, from our own staff picking them up. Our, I would say our staffing levels are, are good. We have um, continued to do outpatient surgeries. Uh, we've had to cut back on inpatient surgeries because uh, we just don't have any bed space. Um, with 280 COVID patients in the place, that's you know a quarter of beds uh, taken up with COVID. Um, we continue to do deliveries and continue to have a busy emergency room. So it's a, it's, it's a full place um, and a fourth of it's COVID. Yeah, for us, uh, there, there's definitely some regional uh, variations, you know, um, since we practice in seven uh, different states. So some of our markets are uh, right next right next to, to David. So him and I get to, to practice side by side in some of our ministries. But I have others that are, you know, in other states that are that are challenged, uh, you know, differently. It's as David says, because we have so many people who are out sick and because of the increase in acuity in uh, in many markets we've had to supplement by getting travelers and uh, you know travelers are not necessarily uh, incentivized to go in every single market there's some places uh, particularly in the winter time that they they are more uh, they're more uh, interested in going to so uh, and, and quite frankly what we also have, to have what we also have to call out is although although we've been able to identify travelers and to fill in the gap we haven't been able to fill in the gap as much as we would like to in some markets and the cost of operation is just absolutely astronomical i feel so fortunate uh you know like like both david and claire that we you know both the three of us work in you know pretty big organizations with good means and uh, in system uh, access to you know system resources, I don't know, and I can't even imagine a standalone organization uh, being able to withstand uh, the the cost. You know wh whether it's staffing, whether it's you know decrease in certain type of revenue in some markets. I mean, it's just like the perfect storm. It's 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 in some places it's heartbreaking. It's killing the healthcare system. And it's leading to bankruptcies for some of the smaller hospitals. It is. It is. And I can tell you, in, in Pittsburgh, we're dealing with the exact same things that both Dave and Syl talked about. Um, you know, when we talk about how, how is staffing, we talk about it on a shift-by-shift -shift basis. And it is, today's a good day. This shift is a good shift. We're predicting the next shift is going to be tough. So let's start making some phone calls to bring people in. Um, we too have gone down the, the staffing uh, agency route, which in, to me is a true moral dilemma because I'm trying to fill the shifts to be able to take care of the patients that, that count on us and to reduce the workload of the current staff that we have. Yet I am feeding that beast, that beast of paying exorbitant amounts of money to staffing agencies. I think that the rules, the people that don't have the same kind of support that, that we have in a large system, I, I think they're going to have, it's going to be a huge impact on them. And I think there's going to be a reckoning of some of these agencies coming forward. Um, there has been attempts to go to the feds and say, how can you stop this price gouging? And they currently have no appetite to do anything. And when I talk to my broker about the staffing 
things, I tell them every single time, this is a moral dilemma for me that I am feeding this beast, and but I can't do anything else. So I have to look at other uh, ways to abate this. Now, I have nurses that leave my organization and walk across the street and work as, a, as an agency nurse for, for my competitor. And I have nurses who are leaving in tears to do that because they say, I can't turn down the opportunity to pay off my school loans. I can't turn down the opportunity to make enough money to send my kid to college next year or put a down payment on a house. And I say, you always have a home back here. And we have we keep that message out there to our staff that leave to go travel. And we're talking to the travelers and saying, look, this gravy train is likely going to end at some point. We are a home for you if you're interested. Um, so it just this is turning nurse staffing on its head right now. And we're trying to keep as focused as we can on those that have stayed and appreciate those who are coming in to help us but it truly is a moral dilemma same thing here claire um, i've had uh, a few nurses who left to be travel nurses tell me that they were going because they could get a break between assignments and um uh, and, and take a little time off um but we're focused on the same strategies you just mentioned but and the moral dilemma is real for me too is it us that's keeping the rates up so high that they can continue to, to those practices to charge those exorbitant rates um, and, and I hate being part of driving it, like you say, feeding the beast. Um, but for our patients who need surgeries, who need to deliver their babies and need care, I, I've got to have the people in place to care for them. And I don't know how else to get them right now. So it really is a true uh, moral dilemma. We've talked about the exorbitant prices that you're having to pay for an agency nurse. Can you put some numbers behind that? Well, the, the rates that we're paying the, the agency are, could be up to three times what our nurses are being paid um, per hour. Um, I don't think the nurses themselves get that that rate from the agencies because the agency takes a little off top, um, but they are making more, probably one and a half, two times more um, per hour than um, our nurses are making. Yeah, we've seen upwards of four times more in the specialty areas like the ICUs and the EDs. So, um, and, and you're right, um, we, they, we went from regular agency rates, which we were used to paying um, for a low number of agency nurses to crisis rates. Wow. And every week or every other week, it seemed during the really bad parts of the surge, the crisis rates would ooch up and ooch up and ooch up. And we're at the mercy of the, the brokers that are bringing us these, uh, the nurses. And, you know, and. And I don't know that the nurses uh, that are working agency know the actual prices themselves of what we're paying per hour, but <clears throat> they know what they're making and their colleagues who are our staff nurse knows what they're making. So that puts that's changing culture on some of our units where we have one of my units is 75% agency and it's a total ch culture change. I'm almost to the point where I want to move those non-agency nurses out to protect them from that and make that a pure agency unit because I think that might that might help with restore the culture once this blows over. Well, each uh, organization's makeup is a little different. At Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles, they relied heavily back in the '70s um, on recruitment of um, Filipino nurses, and about just a little over 40 percent of our staff are Filipino Americans, and they've historically been very loyal to organizations. 
But that organizational loyalty is sort of waning in these times. And while we have that 40, more than 40% of our nurses as, as Filipino Americans, the rest aren't, and they don't have that same organizational loyalty. Um, so it's just a another sort of uh, dilemma that comes up is where do you get your workforce from? So we've, we've tried to have those conversations about, yeah, we're paying these rates to um, these agency nurses, but we, we've been investing in your professional development um, ever since you've been here. And there's a pathway for you forward. And I, we had several people last week graduate with their master's degree that we had supported them in getting. Um, and it was so, such fun celebrating their achievements um, to, to uh, get those degrees. Um, but just trying to show them the ways that we do invest in them um, other than just the hourly wage that they take home has been an important part of our strategy, I think. Claire, I, I have to believe that it will it will go away. It will eventually will get back to some sort of a, whether we call it a new, new normal, but uh, but certainly not the craziness that we find ourselves in right now. So imagine a world where we're where we're not. So what what should our workforce look like? And uh, I see this as an opportunity for us to to, to rethink certain uh, you know things. We've been in this model uh, for you know for a long time, and and what I mean by that for for our audience is you know when you think about I'm I'm focusing here on the on the acute care side and how we how we support uh, taking care of patients, how we arrange ourselves, how we govern ourselves, how we, the models of care right that we have in our acute care environment. We've had those models for, you know, decades, as long as I've been a nurse. And during times where patients used to stay on an average seven days, and here they are today on an average of 1.5 days or so, you know, we, we've been saying for a long time, eventually we're going to have to rethink about the model. And considering, you know, considering what we're, you know, what we're faced with right now, I mean, many of us have had to, you know, uh, innovate a little bit faster than 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 we thought, right? Uh, the way we're using and leveraging telehealth and virtual health and virtual care, supporting our team even in the acute care setting. I'm wondering, you know, what what are you two thinking about uh, about that particular topic of model of care? And 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 as we go out, we're past, you know, we're past COVID. What are you all working on? Uh, I'd like to hear. I'd, I'd like to hear that from you guys, and and maybe we can compare notes. So one of the things um, that we learned during COVID is that we could pivot pretty quickly. We could take OR nurses and put them in the ICU, PACU nurses, and put them in the ICU. Um, but how do we extend the life of the direct care nurse? Because it's not sexy anymore. It used to be the coolest thing in the world, but COVID has shown us how unsexy being a direct care nurse is for your entire career and, and how it, it, it's harder than it was when we were at, at working at the bedside. Things are changing on such a quick basis, but how do we make it attractive again? And how do we change the model so that it is attractive and people want to extend their life working direct care? So one of the things that we decided to do is look at, at hybrid positions. You spend half of your time working in direct care, and then you pick any, any, any other space in our organization and say, I want to work half-time there. Maybe you want to work at half-time as a research nurse. Maybe you want to work half-time in 
home care or hospice or um, or you want to teach in our nursing school and do clinical rotations. Maybe you want to be a, a nurse educator, um, but you're not taking a patient assignment 100% of the time. Now, is that a logistics nightmare for scheduling? It is, but we have to be smarter than that. And we have to be able to embrace the logistics changes and say, the risk is worth the reward. So, so offering these hybrid positions and extending the life of the bed, of the nurse at the bedside and the direct care nurse, it's going to be worth it if we offer something like that. So that's kind of what we're leaning toward now. Otherwise, everybody talks about let's take advantage of of how nursing looks different now. I'm trying to think of other ways that that it does look different besides you know trying to protect in the integrity of direct care nursing. I think Claire is exactly right about um, the flexibility that our people have asked for um, is something that we need to pay attention to and drive to give them. The uh, job sharing idea is something that we've discussed. You know, can you be an educator some of the time and can still contribute as a um, bedside nurse at other times? And, and what other things like virtual nursing or uh, telenursing can we put you into that will give you a little break from the the standing on your feet for 12 hours running around like a chicken with your head cut off uh, sort of um, speed that they work at on the floors. I've shadowed a couple of times over the past few months and uh, one of my experiences was in our um, uh, trauma ICU in, in um, the main medical center and two hours um, exhausted me for the next Six months. <laughs> now, how that guy does it for twelve, but you know, he said he's chasing his tail um, the whole time that he's assigned to that that unit. He was one of our float nurses who works in multiple areas, a very skilled um, nursing professional. But um, it, it's tough, and but finding those ways to to get people just a little bit of time to come up and and lift their nose out of the water and breathe um, is going to be important to. You know, I talked about organizational loyalty. I think it's loyalty to um, um, the bedside um, is sort of what we're trying to create. Yeah, absolutely. I'm inspired by what I'm I'm hearing from from both of you, and and to to add on or t uh, to what uh, David was just uh, saying. That that's one thing that I'm that that I'm really focused on right now is is what uh, how can we best support those nurses who are caring for patients? You know. So, support them in their practice and remove all of that noise and stuff that over the years we've asked uh, them uh, them to do so whether it's supporting them virtually uh, to decrease that we call it internally the kind of the administrative burden that perhaps uh, the job has uh, has become how do we remove that with virtual help or uh, and as equally important you know how much of what they do requires to be a licensed nurse and how much of what they do does not uh, so that we can get them back to do you know what they really like to do and then let's reintroduce or introduce our roles uh, or better leverage those who are around the, the, the entire healthcare team around so that they can do uh, some of that stuff that doesn't necessarily need to be done by uh, by nurses i'm currently looking at all of what nurses document in the medical record. And we're looking at some data, leveraging the data coming out of the medical record of all those activities that the nurses are doing. How many are those and what percentage of those actually required to have a license? 
And let me tell you, it's a bit uh, overwhelming, uh, to say the least. And the number, the number of hours that they're also spending, you know, and the medical records. You know, I mean, we're focused in this conversation for nurses, but it goes, it goes. This this same concept goes for any other profession uh, in, in in healthcare today. I think. Let me just jump in here to remind listeners that my guests today are three nurse leaders from around the country. Dr. Claire Zangerly is the Chief Nursing Executive at Allegheny Health Network in Pittsburgh. Dr. David Marshall, Senior Vice President and Chief Nursing Executive at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. And Dr. Silcher Panier is the Senior Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer for Providence, based in Renton, Washington. Still to come, we'll hear from a nurse in Portland who talks about what they don't teach you in nursing school. Claire, earlier you described a staffing plan that would allow direct care nurses the opportunity to pick another area of the organization to spend half of their time. Does that run the risk of breaking down the rapport that builds up the teamwork when you work together on a unit shift after shift after shift? I don't think so. I don't think it breaks down the teamwork. I think, um, I think if we if it's going to take some change management and us helping manage that change and the culture, my hopes and our hopes as a team are that doing some of these hybrid positions would actually enrich the team. So you come back and you work with your team and you say, look, when I was working in the ambulatory area, this is what I learned. When we send a patient home, they're not totally prepared to do what they need to do. And then they come into the ambulatory clinic and it's not working for them. So how do we how do we prepare them better on the floors before they leave to do that? So I'm hoping that it's more of an enrichment instead of a, a deterrent. I think Claire's spot on with the, the enriching part of um, what our responsibility is with the staff and preparing them to be their best self when they're applying their their craft. And I think sending them into areas with these hybrid opportunities can make them better um, in, in both places, um, both at the bedside and in, in that place that they've gone to learn a new skill or a new way of doing things. And, and I think when our staff gets enriched, uh, it enriches um, our culture and our place and, and um, others. So I think Claire is spot on with that. I mean, I agree with both of you, and I would say that all of that, uh, all of that can happen, and then some, so long as, as we fully prepare, right, uh, people to uh, to endorse, you know, uh, that that change, a change in practice, a change in environment, and that we're fully supporting the team, uh, whether it's the whether it's the preparation level of the or the orientation or the onboarding or the. Uh, and, and the welcoming, and as long as that, all of that is in uh, is in place, it does create all of what Claire and uh, David just uh, just shared. As you all sit in leadership meetings and you're representing nurses, what do you find yourself saying that other people at the table aren't? What do you have to advocate for? I, I think for me, it's uh, you know, we're dealing with what was a pre-existing condition in healthcare and and. So you had a workforce that was already um, experiencing some burnout, and then they had to manage added work. They had to manage fear, concern for their own health, their their family's health, a collective trauma that we've all gone through. 
um, all the emotional stress that came along with the shutdown and, you know, the, the reaction to the George Floyd uh, death and all the racial stuff that's been going on uh, really weighed on everybody. And now they can't look at me at that table that I sit at and think that I'm going to solve the problem. It's going to take all of us. Um, so please be in this with me, uh, not rooting for me. I need you with me and helping me solve this. It's going to be a whole system solution, not just a nursing solution. Well, yes. And um, another part of the conversation that uh, I find myself is saying a lot uh, is, 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 is the, the reminding ourselves that, you know, we, we say that our people are our number one asset. And, and meanwhile, uh, at the same time, uh, it's not uncommon in organizations or in, I'll even say in parts of my organizations where, uh, you know, where nursing services, uh, you know, at times is perceived as an expense. Well, you can't say that your most important asset is your people and to look at them as an expense. That just doesn't, makes sense in my mind. And th this whole crisis, uh, which, and David said it very well, right? Th this, this, this is not new. Uh, it's, just, it's just that all of a sudden, the pandemic just like threw us over the edge. And uh, it's very clear. Uh, and, and perhaps I can articulate it very differently today, or maybe one would say that I'm using this crisis as an opportunity to remind uh, people that, uh, that, that there were not a cost center, but rather uh, an investment in order to be able to, to deliver uh, what we have to deliver. You know, I think we even opened the call. I think you opened the call this way, Sean. I think you said something like the nurses are the heart of healthcare. Well, we have to make sure that we see that we see the importance of investing in our nurses so that uh, we can deliver on everything that we all say we're here to do. So that interaction at the bedside, I'm fascinated by it because not only Sill in an earlier interview with you, you use the phrase um, the, the role of nurses is to bring science to the bedside. But I'm aware as, you know, having been a patient, that that nurse is the face of the organization, of the hospital. And if you have a good relationship with that nurse, it's going to change your, your opinion of what your hospital stay is like. And if you've got someone who is distracted for whatever reason, finances, worry, I think that's going to spill over into satisfaction scores and how happy patients are to be cared in your hospital. Yeah, I, you know, we did a study where we looked at burnout and uh, personal adversity. And I think the things that you're talking about are personal adversity, things like uh, financial troubles, death in the family, divorce, birth of a child, um, many, many things like that. Our, our burnout rates were pretty equal with others in the, in the reported in the nation. But personal adversity was off the charts. Um, people were struggling, um, and we tried to find interventions um, to um, help their coworkers recognize that in in them and tell them to it's time you need to take a break um, or hey let's go have a cup of coffee things aren't going well and I need to talk to you about it um, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I think you're exactly right. We are human beings. We experience emotions, and we can't hide them. Um, 
lots of times from even people that were charged with caring for. Yeah, you know, nurses are not robots and they're not Teflon. And that's that's the thing is that, you know, people think that nurses resilience is it can overcome anything. Well, I, I do think that we've seen a lot of that. But I also think that people realize we can't continue along this path. This is not sustainable because no single profession should be burdened as much as nurses are right now. Not that others in healthcare are not. But I can tell you, we were on the clinician wellness journey um, a couple of years before the pandemic hit, and we saw some really good results from the interventions that we did. When we first started, we realized our nurses were not taking meal breaks or hydrating. So we made intentional efforts to do that. And then during the pandemic, we continued with our wellness surveys. Post, -pan uh, post big pandemic, we did as well. And we saw that fall by the wayside. And there's, and we have to continue to throw that spaghetti against the wall until it sticks to say, this is important. It's important for you to take care of yourselves because you are not, you're not going to be able to, you know, fight off all of the things that are coming at you. We're a clinician at Allegheny Health Network. We're a clinician run organization. So I'm very fortunate that my physician partners, my other clinician partners hear what I have to say about we can't do this anymore. And, you know, I feel like my voice at the table saying we've got to limit inpatient surgeries. We've got to limit some of the stuff we can. Let's control what we can control because the things we can't control are what are going to be our biggest challenges if we don't control the things we can. And I'm fortunate that they hear that. Now, you know, I still have, you know, to, to step up and kind of have those very crucial conversations with people like in finance who say, well, you know what, we're doing all this for the nurses. I said, you know what, it's never enough for what they're doing. Because if you don't have a nurse, you can't bring that bypass patient in. And if you don't bring that bypass patient in times 50, you know, then we're not going to be able to pay our bills, period. And, I, you know, they're starting to hear. And I think it's, you know, I feel like I'm, I, th I feel like I'm fighting for my team every day, but not fighting negatively. I'm, I'm, I'm their voice. And, you know, and I let them know about these discussions, too. I don't hide anything from them. I don't tell them things are unicorns and rainbows because they know they're not. Um, I don't know about you guys, but we've been sort of pushed by um, a lot of our employees to give a retention bonus. And that's been tough because it, it's another um, question for us. Like, you know, we've seen people at other hospitals get retention bonuses and they still leave to go travel because the agencies buy out their retention bonuses. And, you know, what are we doing for the people that are staying? And I'm having these conversations constantly with my finance people because they're like, what can you guarantee will happen if we give a retention bonus? I said, I have zero guarantees. Like nobody has guarantees of anything. Um, so, so those are the difficult conversations that we're having at the table constantly that have a downstream impact on our staff. You know, Claire, I, I want to double down on some of the stuff that you said, you know, earlier. And, and, and oh, by the way, yes, we, we, do, uh, we do get a lot of those requests uh, as well. And we've made significant investment uh, last year, you know, in retention bonuses and, and you know, and the likes. But, you know, there's, um, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But there's a few things earlier that you said 
that really resonated with me. I, when I think back about the, you know, the, the, the crisis that we find ourselves in, the best thing I can do is meet them where they are right now. I, I think that's, that's kind of the number one thing. And then creating that space to talk about the it, the it meaning, you know, where they are, what they're feeling. But also I, I need to remind myself and I need to remind others that we don't control everything. And sometimes that's really hard. And there's certain things that we just need to let go of. And we're not always very good at that. Uh, might be a human trait, but it certainly is a nursing trait uh, for sure. I mean, I used to say we have to encourage people to take care of themselves. We're past that. We have to make sure people take care of themselves, no matter where you are in the entire organization. So I've found myself now in conversations with, probably like you, I spent maybe a little bit more time with leaders than I do with bedside leaders, but regardless of where I am in the organization, and particularly with, with leaders right now, I find myself having to convince and inspire them uh, to take time off. And uh, it's just not okay anymore. And, and oh, by the way, you can't control that piece over there. Just let it go. Just let it go. Thank you all for taking the time to talk with one another and with me today. Um, learned a lot. And I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great to visit with you both. You too, Phil. Good to see you, Claire. You too. Dr. Claire Zangerly, Chief Nurse Executive at Allegheny Health Network in Pittsburgh. Dr. David Marshall is the Senior Vice President and Chief Nursing Executive at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. And Dr. Syl Trepanier is the Senior Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer for Providence, based in Renton, Washington. One last story now from a nurse. Jen Little-Reese is a nurse manager at the Providence Portland Medical Center. For years, she worked the night shift on an oncology unit. The beautiful thing about my work is I never had to do it alone. Um, I worked on the cancer floor for about 12 years, and I worked night shift. So one of the things about night shift is the team is so tight. We rely on each other so much because there are not resources. There are not doctors who are awake. If you want a doctor, you have to wake them up. There are not dietitians. There's a lot of services that happen during the day that are not available easily at night shift. And therefore, the nursing team becomes this big, tight group that helps take care of each other. Hmm. I will always remember, my whole career is full of snapshots. A time that I'm remembering that there that teamwork was required, we had a patient who very unexpectedly just collapsed. The nurse who was his direct care nurse, meaning she was the one responsible for taking care of him, was in the room. And so there's buttons you can push to get people's attention, but really on night shift the best way to get people's attention is to yell. And so that nurse did exactly the right thing. She yelled, I need help in this room. And she yelled the room number and I heard yelling because on night shift noise travels and I came running yeah. and um, she was leaning over the patient checking his pulse and she looked into my eyes and she there was so much in those eyes I'm terrified I don't know what's happening I don't know what I'm supposed to do I do know what I'm supposed to do I'm so glad you're here you have to help me I don't know what to do and I poked my eyes back 
into hers and I said, you do know what to do. We're going to be okay. We're going to get through this together. Silently. This Silently. Is, this is, there this was is no speaking. It was just exchange. the connection that we yeah. had. And then we started doing the emergency interventions. We did all the emergency interventions. We did them all perfectly. The patient mm -hmm. didn't live. Mm -hmm. We called the right people. We got the right people there. We called the patient's family. We had the, the priest there. Everybody had come. It was all, the whole code team did everything really beautifully. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and the patient died. And so uh, the, the thing about the teamwork that happens is that there's a, there's, a, there's a whole through line that continues after a patient dies. Mm -hmm. So after a patient dies, the nurses are still responsible for taking care of that patient. Yeah. The team is responsible for doing post-mortem care, which is a real technical term for we make sure that the patient's body is clean, that tubes and wires are taken out of their body, mm -hmm. um, that they're ready to be sent to the morgue. Uh, I have watched many, many new nurses have the experience of putting a human being in a body bag. It is, oh. it is a big deal. Yeah. Like there are many really big things that no one's ever prepared for. You don't talk about the experience of zipping a body bag closed in nursing school. Mm -hmm. So as we navigate that, we navigated all of that as a team. So I was there with that nurse. This was the first time she had ever had a patient in a code situation. So I was there after he had died. We reviewed the story. And, and the story is the most powerful thing. That's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. Because it is the telling of the stories together with people who have experienced trauma with you. It is that experience that helps you on the pathway to healing. That's Jen Little-Reese talking with her partner, Taryn Williams, about her work as a nurse at the Providence Portland Medical Center. Their conversation is part of the Hear Me Now Oral History Project, our growing collection of stories from healthcare workers and patients and families and friends is available to you online on demand. Visit our website at hearmenowpodcast.org for a link. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. On Twitter, we're human underscore caring. Some real talk for a minute. We'd love to see the audience of this podcast grow. And one way for that to happen rests in your hands. Every time you tell a friend about us or share a link to an episode on social media or I don't know, sneak your friend's phones when they're not looking and subscribe them to the Hear Me Now podcast. All of that will help us more than you could know. We're grateful for you listening and for your help in getting the word out. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. Special thanks to Manoli Weatherell and Lars Howell this week for their audio engineering help. You guys are the best. Speaking of the best, we have research help from medical librarians Catherine Gibbs, Carrie Grinstead, Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakhtev, Sarah Viscuso, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. 
We'll be back in two weeks with a lively conversation with Drs. Daniela Lamas and Ira Bayak, two leading physicians who find themselves at opposite ends of a growing debate over advanced care planning. I hope you'll be with us. I'm Sean Collins. As always, thanks for listening. Be well. Thank you.